Chapter 5, Part 3 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Mary Maxwell. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart, by Alexander Dumas. After breakfast, the Queen went down into the garden. Her satisfied pride had restored some of her cheerfulness, so much so that, seeing while crossing the hall a mandolin lying forgotten on a chair, she told Mary Seaton to take it, to see, she said, if she could recall her old talent. In reality, the Queen was one of the best musicians of the time, and played admirably, says Brantome, on the lute and viol de amour, an instrument much resembling the mandolin. Mary Seaton obeyed. Arrived in the garden, the queen sat down in the deepest shade, and there, having tuned her instrument, she at first drew from it lively and light tones, which soon darkened little by little, at the same time that her countenance assumed a hue of deep melancholy. Mary Seaton looked at her with uneasiness, although for a long time she had been used to these sudden changes in her mistress's humor, and she was about to ask the reason of this gloomy veil suddenly spread over her face, when, regulating her harmonies, Mary began to sing in a low voice, and as if for herself alone, the following verses. Caverns, meadows, plains, and mounts, lands of tree and stone, rivers, rivulets, and founts, by which I stray alone, bewailing as I go with tears that overflow, sing will I the miserable woe that bids me grieve and sigh. I, but what is here to lend ear to my lament, what is here can comprehend my dull discontent, Neither grass nor reed nor the ripples heed flowing by while the stream with speed hastens from my eye. Vainly does my wounded heart hope, alas, to heal, seeking to allay its smart, things that cannot feel. Better should my pain bitterly complain, crying shrill to thee who dost constrain my spirit to such ill. Goddess who shalt never die, list to what I say. Thou who makest me to lie weak beneath thy sway, if my life must know ending at thy blow, cruelest, own it perished so, but at thy behest. Lo, my face may all men see, slowly pine and fade, e'en as ice doth melt and flee near a furnace laid. Yet the burning ray wasting me away, passion's glow, wakens no display of pity for my woe. Yet does every neighbor tree, every rocky wall, this my sorrow know and see, so in brief doth all nature know aright this my sorry plight, thou alone takest thy delight to hear me cry and moan. But if it be thy will to see tormented still wretched me, then let my woeful ill immortal be. This last verse died away as if the queen were exhausted, and at the same time the mandolin slipped from her hands, and would have fallen to the ground had not Mary Seaton thrown herself on her knees and prevented it. The young girl remained thus at her mistress's feet for some time, gazing at her silently, and as she saw that she was losing herself more and more in gloomy reverie, have those lines brought back to your majesty some sad remembrance, she asked hesitantly. Oh, yes, answered the queen. They reminded me of the unfortunate being who composed them. And may I, without indiscretion, inquire of your grace who is their author? Alas, he was a noble, brave, and handsome young man with a faithful heart and a hot head, who would defend me today if I had defended him then. But his boldness seemed to be rashness, and his fault a crime. 
What was to be done? I did not love him. Poor Chatelard, I was very cruel to him. But you did not prosecute him, it was your brother. You did not condemn him, the judges did. Yes, yes, I know that he too was Murray's victim, and that is no doubt the reason that I am calling him to mind just now. But I was able to pardon him, Mary, and I was inflexible. I let ascend the scaffold a man whose only crime was in loving me too well, and now I am astonished and complain of being abandoned by everyone. Listen, darling, there is one thing that terrifies me. It is that when I search within myself, I find that I have not only deserved my fate, but even that God did not punish me severely enough. What strange thoughts for your grace, cried Mary, and see where those unlucky lines which return to your mind have led you the very day when you were beginning to recover a little of your cheerfulness. Alas, replied the queen, shaking her head and uttering a deep sigh, for six years very few days have passed that I have not repeated those lines to myself although it may be for the first time today that I repeat them aloud. He was a Frenchman, too, Mary. They have exiled from me, taken or killed all who came to me from France. Do you remember that vessel which was swallowed up before our eyes when we came out of Calais Harbor? I exclaimed then that it was a sad omen. You all wanted to reassure me. Well, who was right now, you or I? The Queen was in one of those fits of sadness for which tears are the sole remedy. So Mary Seaton, perceiving that not only would every consolation be vain, but also unreasonable, far from continuing to re react against her mistress's melancholy, fully agreed with her. It followed that the queen, who was suffocating, began to weep, and that her tears brought her comfort. Then little by little she regained self-control, and this crisis passed as usual, leaving her firmer and more resolute than ever, so that when she went up to her room again it was impossible to read the slightest alteration in her countenance. The dinner hour was approaching, and Mary, who in the morning was looking forward impatiently to the enjoyment of her triumph over Lady Lochleven, now saw her advance with uneasiness. The mere idea of again facing this woman, whose pride one was always obliged to oppose with insolence, was, after the moral fatigues of the day, a fresh weariness. So she decided not to appear for dinner. As on the day before, she was all the more glad she had taken this resolution that this time it was not Lady Lochleven who came to fulfill the duties enjoined on a member of the family to make the Queen easy, but George Douglas, whom his mother, in her displeasure at the morning scene, sent to replace her. Thus, when Mary Seaton told the Queen that she saw the young man with the dark hair cross the courtyard on his way to her, Mary still further congratulated herself on her decision, for this young man's insolence had wounded her more deeply than all his mother's haughty insults. The Queen was not a little astonished then, when in a few minutes Mary Seaton returned and informed her that George Douglas, having sent away the servants, desired the honor of speaking to her on a matter of importance. At first the Queen refused, but Mary Seaton told her that the young man's air and manner this time were so different from what she had seen two days before that she thought her mistress would be wrong to refuse his request. The Queen rose then, and with the pride and majesty habitual to her, entered the adjoining room, and having taken three steps, stopped with a disdainful air, waiting for George to address her. Mary Seaton had spoken truly. George Douglas was now another man. Today he seemed to be as respectful and timid as the preceding day he had seemed haughty and proud. He, in his turn, made a step towards the Queen, but seeing Mary Seaton standing behind her, Madam, said he, I wish to speak with your Majesty alone. Shall I not obtain this favor? Mary Seaton is not a stranger to me. 
Sir, she is my sister, my friend, she is more than all that, she is my companion in captivity. And by all these claims, madam, I have the utmost veneration for her. But what I have to tell you cannot be heard by other ears than yours. Thus, madam, as the opportunity furnished now may perhaps never present itself again, in the name of what is dearest to you, grant me what I ask. There was such a tone of respectful prayer in George's voice that Mary turned to the young girl, and making her a friendly sign with her hand, Go then, darling, she said, but be easy. You will lose nothing by not hearing. Go. Mary Seaton withdrew. The queen smilingly looked after her till the door was shut. Then, turning to George, Now, sir, she said, we are alone. Speak. But George, instead of replying, advanced to the queen, and kneeling on one knee, drew from his breast a paper which he presented to her. Mary took it with amazement, unfolded it, glancing at Douglas, who remained in the same posture, and read as follows. We, earls, lords, and barons, in consideration that our queen is detained at Lochleven, and that her faithful subjects cannot have access to her person, seeing, on the other hand, that our duty pledges us to provide for her safety, promise and swear to employ all reasonable means which will depend on us to set her at liberty again on conditions compatible with the honor of her majesty, the welfare of the kingdom, and even with the safety of those who keep her in prison provided that they consent to give her up, that if they refuse, we declare that we are prepared to make use of ourselves, our children, our friends, our servants, our vassals, our goods, our persons, and our lives, to restore her to liberty, to procure the safety of the prince, and to cooperate in punishing the late king's murderers. If we are assailed for this intent, whether as a body or in private, we promise to defend ourselves and to aid one another under pain of infamy and perjury, so may God help us, given with our own hands at Dunbarton, St. Andrews, Argyle, Huntley, Arbroth, Galloway, Ross, Fleming, Herries, Sterling, Kilwinning, Hamilton, and St. Clair, Knight. And Seton, cried Mary, among all these signatures, I do not see that of my faithful Seton. Douglas, still kneeling, drew from his breast a second paper and presented it to the queen with the same marks of respect. It contained only these words. Trust George Douglas, for your majesty has no more devoted friend in the entire kingdom. Seton. Mary lowered her eyes to Douglas, with an expression which was hers only, then giving him her hand to raise him. Ah, she said with a sigh more of joy than of sadness, now I see that God, in spite of my faults, has not yet abandoned me. But how is it in this castle that you, a Douglas, oh, it is incredible, Madam, replied George, seven years have passed since I saw you in France for the first time, and for seven years I have loved you. Mary moved, but Douglas put forth his hand and shook his head with an air of such profound sadness that she understood she might hear what the young man had to say. He continued, Reassure yourself, madam, I should never have made this confession if, while explaining my conduct to you, this confession would not have given you greater confidence in me. Yes, for seven years I have loved you, but as one loves a star that one can never reach, a Madonna to whom one can only pray. For seven years I have followed you everywhere without you ever having paid attention to me, without my saying a word or making a gesture to attract your notice. I was on the night of Melvillain's galley when you crossed to Scotland. I was among the regent's soldiers when you beat Huntley. I was in the escort which accompanied you when you went to see the sick king at Glasgow. I reached Edinburgh an hour after you had left it for Loch Levin, and then it seemed to me that my mission was revealed to me for the first time, 
and that this love for which till then I had reproached myself as a crime, was on the contrary a favor from God. I learned that the lords were assembled at Dumbarton. I flew thither. I pledged my name, I pledged my honor, I pledged my life, and I attained from them, thanks to the facility I had for coming into this fortress, the happiness of bringing you the paper they have just signed. Now, madam, forget all I have told you, except the assurance of my devotion and respect. Forget that I am near you. I am used to not being seen. Only if you have need of my life, make a sign. For seven years my life has been yours. Alas, replied Mary, I was complaining this morning of no longer being loved, and I ought to complain, on the contrary, that I am still loved, for the love that I inspire is fatal and mortal. Look back, Douglas, and count the tombs that, young as I am, I have already left on my path. Francis the Second, Chatelard, Rizzio, Darnley. Oh, to attach oneself to my fortune more than love is needed, now heroism and devotion are requisite so much the more that, as you have said, Douglas, it is love without any possible reward. Do you understand? Oh, madam, madam, answered Douglas, is it not reward beyond my deserts to see you daily, to cherish the hope that liberty will be restored to you through me, and to have at least, if I do not give it you, the certainty of dying in your sight? Poor young man, murmured Mary, her eyes raised to heaven, as if she were reading there beforehand the fate awaiting her new defender. Happy Douglas, on the contrary, cried George, seizing the queen's hand and kissing it with perhaps still more respect than love. Happy Douglas, for in obtaining a sigh from your majesty he has already obtained more than he hoped. And upon what have you decided with my friends, said the queen, raising Douglas, who till then had remained on his knees before her. Nothing yet, George replied, for we scarcely had time to see one another. Your escape, impossible without me, is difficult even with me and your majesty has seen that I was obliged publicly to fail in respect, to obtain from my mother the confidence which gives me the good fortune of seeing you today. If this confidence on my mother's or my brother's part ever extends to giving up to me the castle keys, then you are saved. Let your majesty not be surprised at anything, then. In the presence of others, I shall ever be always a Douglas, that is, an enemy, and except your life be in danger, madam, I shall not utter a word, I shall not make a gesture which might betray the faith that I have sworn you. But on your side, let your grace know well that present or absent, whether I am silent or speak, whether I act or remain inert, all will be in appearance only, save my devotion. Only, continued Douglas, approaching the window and showing to the queen a little house on Kinross Hill, only look every evening in that direction, madam, and so long as you see a light shine there, your friends will be keeping watch for you, and you need not lose hope. Thanks, Douglas. Thanks, said the queen. It does one good to meet with a heart like yours from time to time. Oh, thanks. And now, madam, replied the young man, I must leave your majesty. To remain longer with you would be to raise suspicions, and a single doubt of me. Think of it well, madam, and that light which is your sole beacon is extinguished, and all returns into night. With these words, Douglas bowed more respectfully than he had yet done, and withdrew, leaving Mary full of hope, and still more full of pride, for this time the homage she had just received was certainly for the woman, and not for the queen. As the queen had told him, Mary Seaton was informed of everything, even the love of Douglas, and the two women impatiently awaited the evening to see if the promised star would shine on the horizon. Their hope was not in vain. At the appointed time, the beacon was lit. The queen trembled with joy, for it was the confirmation of her hopes, and her companion could not tear her from the window, where she remained with her gaze fastened on the little house in Kinross. 
At last she yielded to Mary Seaton's prayers and consented to go to bed, but twice in the night she rose noiselessly to go to the window. The light was always shining and was not extinguished till dawn with its sisters the stars. Next day at breakfast, George announced to the Queen the return of his brother, William Douglas. He arrived the same evening. As to himself, George, he had to leave Loch Levin next morning to confer with the nobles who had signed the declaration and who had immediately separated to raise troops in their several counties. The Queen could not attempt to good purpose any escape, but at a time when she would be sure of gathering round her an army strong enough to hold the country. As to him, Douglas, one was so used to his silent disappearances and his unexpected returns that there was no reason to fear that his departure would inspire any suspicion. All passed as George had said. In the evening the sound of a bugle announced the arrival of William Douglas. He had with him Lord Ruthven, the son of him who had assassinated Rizzio, and who, exiled with Morton after the murder, died in England of the sickness with which he was already attacked the day of the terrible catastrophe in which we have seen him take such a large share. He preceded by one day Lord Lindsay of Byers and Sir Robert Melville, brother of Mary's former ambassador to Elizabeth. All three were charged with a mission from the regent to the queen. End of chapter 5, part 3